Hey there. Today we're talking to Amy Johnson. She's the executive director at the Access to Justice Commission. She is also running for circuit judge for Pulaski and Perry counties. I will be voting for her no matter who runs against her. I cannot say enough good things about Amy. She is smart. She cares about people. She works really hard. She's an amazing mom, a great friend. She's fun. She's all of the things. And I think she would be an incredible asset to the bench. I have, I'm completely biased, so just know that as we have this conversation. But we talk about a lot, a lot about the courts, obviously. Uh, and we talk a lot about access to justice and what she's been doing, her hopes and dreams for the future of access to justice, how she would think about things from the bench and things that she might change to make it easier for litigants in the court system. It's complicated in the sense that there are a lot of stakeholders, and as an attorney myself, it's hard to know where that balance is or how to figure out a way that we can still make a living uh, to pay off all my student loans and the expenses of being an attorney, but also to help people because the system is the people's system and we should all have access to it and it shouldn't matter how much money you have or who you know to be able to get help and redress in the courts. It doesn't mean you should win, it just means you need to get a fair shot. And judicial elections are really important. We want fair and impartial judges, no matter what their personal beliefs and politics are. Their loyalty is to the law and to the courts and to making good, fair decisions. Everyone is entitled to be heard, but not everyone gets a chance to be heard. So we need to work on that. We have quite a long conversation. It's longer than normal, but we, I mean, we barely scratched the surface. Uh, I do want to mention there's a point at which I talk about the legislature imposing a $50 fee for people who want to have their records sealed or expunged, and that has since been changed. So they eliminated that fee in the 2019 session, which is great news. I'm glad to hear that. I think that's the only correction I need to make, but otherwise, I hope you enjoy the conversation. There's really a lot of good information in here. Lots of stuff you probably don't think about because you don't have to. The courts are an area that affect all of us, and you may have ideas for ways to make the courts better and to make them more accessible to people. So we want to hear about it. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Amy, welcome to the Uppity Women Women podcast. Uh, can you tell us who you are and where you're from, a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, my name is Amy Dunn Johnson. I am an attorney here in Little Rock. I've lived in Central Arkansas since I graduated from Hendricks, so I've been here for most of my life. I grew up in Fort Smith. Um, I currently work for the Arkansas Access to Justice Commission and its sister nonprofit foundation, the Arkansas Access to Justice Foundation. You know, I think I told you this before, but I applied for this job, your job, um, when it first was created. That must have been in 2010? It was 2009. Um, and I remember interviewing, it was a great interview, mm -hmm. and then I heard that you got it, and my first thought was, of course, because her <laughs> husband is a legislator. That's what I thought. Not that she's a total badass and is going to be great in this job. And so, but then, but then I was, you know, I got over myself, um, and... I, I cannot tell you how perfect you've been for this position. So I just want to say that. I appreciate so much um, what you've done for Arkansas and, and the people in Arkansas. So I just want to say that, even though I initially was jealous of you. But then, as it turned out, I got a job as the spokesperson. So me applying for that job 
led to me getting the job as communications counsel because they had already met me. So it actually all worked out perfectly. Yes. Until it, until it didn't. But anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Um, so, so when you applied, when you became the the director for Access to Justice, it was a new commission. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, can you tell me sort of uh, the how and why of of the Access to Justice Commission and why it was created? Sure. So, our Access to Justice Commission here in Arkansas was the fourth such commission around the country to get started. So, we were pretty early in the movement. Um, commissions have been created out of a recognition that we have a serious problem with access to the court system and access to lawyers. And just so many people who are denied their day in court, who are denied the ability to solve everyday problems. And legal aid programs around the country, we have two of them here in Arkansas, the Center for Arkansas Legal Services and Legal Aid of Arkansas. Those two programs have a combined total of about 50 attorneys statewide. They get 30,000 calls a year and they're able to help, you know, 10, 12,000 folks but they're having to turn away more people than they're able to help. And there was a recognition that this isn't a problem that just legal aid can solve. It requires leadership from judges, from the business community, from nonprofits, uh, from legislators, from just a, a wide variety of folks who uh, have, have a voice and who see what the impact is when people don't get justice. I think as lawyers, it's really easy for us to talk about access to justice and getting an attorney to help you, but um, most people don't think of it that way. They think of, of their problems in terms of, I have this financial issue, my, my paycheck is getting garnished, or my grandchildren don't have parents who are in the picture because they're you know, suffering from substance abuse or addiction, and I've got to get them enrolled in school. People a lot of times don't think about the legal system as being the avenue for fixing those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, I think, requires, and you know, we as lawyers can always think we know what's best, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but just ask us. Have, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it really does require the understanding and the input of, of a, a variety of people who see how things happen when people don't have access to justice. And it really impacts our economy. You know, we, we don't think of it, I think, from that perspective. Uh, the, the legally healthy, healthier we are, you know, the, the better off we are as a community. D- does that make sense? So, so when you've got people who are struggling with you know, they can't afford to um, get substance abuse help or um, get their kids in school. I mean, that really impacts their whole lives. It I'm, not, does. I'm not saying this this very well, but I'm trying to say if we would help people get it together and and put their families back together, whatever the whatever the issue is. It, it helps all of us. It does. And I, I think, you know, one example that, it, that comes to mind, um, I met a couple, it was great-great-grandparents who were needing to get guardianship of their great-grandson. Um, both his parents and his grandparents were out of the picture because of opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. And this kid was struggling in school. He had a teacher who said, who called him stupid. Um, and he couldn't get access to, you know, his his medicine. He didn't have 
anyone who could go to the school and say, look, this my, this kid needs a plan um, to, to help him succeed because of these issues. And getting him a guardianship allowed his, his great-grandparents to intervene and to get um, a planning team working on helping him succeed. Uh, they also involved uh, doctors and a, a multidisciplinary team. And this kid is now making straight A's. Mm-hmm. He has a stable home environment and is is on a path to be able to succeed. And the, having that, that kind of legal intervention can make the difference between somebody ending up in poverty or in prison because they, you know, lack the ability to, you know, just take care of their basic needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such a small investment for such long-term benefits. You Absolutely. Know, as a state. Uh, I wish we would think of it more in those terms. Uh, and just to clarify, legal aid is just for civil legal aid, right? Um, in the criminal system, uh, we are, in theory, entitled to criminal defense, uh, a defense if we're in the criminal system, but, but legal aid is just for civil issues. That's correct. And that's what our, our Access to Justice Commission focuses on. There, there are obviously a lot of ways where those two, you know, overlap. Mm-hmm. Um where people get involved in the criminal justice system and get fines and fees piled on top of them so that they are essentially being punished for being poor. They're never able to get out from underneath it, and it ultimately affects their ability to, to get gainful employment. It affects their it affects every aspect of their lives, and mm-hmm. it, it, it spins out into civil issues. Um, but there is. There is a lot of overlap, but our focus is on, on civil legal problems. Now, the two legal aid programs do some work in spaces where there is that overlap. Uh, they're doing a lot of work around re-entry, where folks who are being released from prison and need their identity documents, uh, if they have a criminal offense that can be expunged so that they can gain housing and credit and employment, uh, the legal aid programs are helping with with, with issues like that. So there, there's a, a nexus to criminal justice there, but primarily it's to help with the civil legal needs around housing and income and family stability. Mm-hmm. You're also, don't you partner too with Children's for a Medical Legal Partnership or UAMS? Yes. Yeah, so one of the models that's really grown up around the country, and again, I mean, this is legal aid that's primarily doing this, okay. um, but where you have an attorney who is part of a health care team. You know, again, this is how, how everyday people think about their problems. They think they don't think about it as a legal problem. But if you do have a child who is denied a medically necessary piece of equipment or is denied medication, you know, there's there's red tape there that lawyers are uniquely situated to be able to address. And by having an attorney as part of that team, a lot of times they're able to identify a lot of times issues that are going to be contributing to the poor health of, of the child in the case of children's hospital or the, you know, the just stressors uh, for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a great story and I'd, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember where it's from. I believe it was out of, out of Atlanta and this was not a medical partnership, but it was where legal aid partnered with a, a local school and they realized that 
there was a, a tremendous turnover rate in, in the students. And of course, you, you anytime a, a child changes schools, that's going to set them back six months in their ability to, to kind of catch up and succeed. And that there was this extraordinarily high turnover rate at the school. And so they ended up situating some attorneys in the school and come to find out a lot of the children who were attending that school were from this particular Section 8 housing area where there were some so difficult landlords where there were lots of evictions going on and where there were poor housing conditions. Mm -hmm. And by having attorneys intervene in that situation, uh, they completely turned around that school. I mean, kids were staying in school. They weren't getting behind. Uh, grades improved. I mean, it just the outcomes for these children improved because you had an attorney situated as part of a team with other disciplines. And that's, you know, in, in thinking about how, how legal services are delivered, I think finding those creative partnerships is a new direction where, where, where we need to be heading. Mm, I will find that story. Or if you find it, email it to me I and I'll will. put it in the show notes. I will. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And it may help, too. I mean, I just, people get confused a lot between what the role of access to justice is mm -hmm. and what legal, legal aid, aid does. Right. And so just to be clear too, our commission does not provide direct legal services. Right. We do policy advocacy work, we do research. We took a look at um, attorneys around the state and where they're concentrated and their ages and unsurprisingly found that rural communities are grossly underserved when it comes to access to attorneys and as a result of that research the Bowen School of Law ended up launching a rural practice incubator program so we we look for ways to develop the research to make the case for, for policy initiatives, whether they're initiatives that we as a commission undertake or whether we do those with, with other partners. So that's where the, the work of the commission focuses. Right. Um, and then the work of the foundation, um, you know, we're, we're the nonprofit partner. We primarily exist to make grants to support some of this, this work that we've talked about that legal aid does. So mm -hmm. we, we fund the work that the programs do to provide life-changing legal help to Arkansas families. Okay, so to be clear, you support the, well, you don't provide direct services, but you do support the work of legal aid in policy development, um, sometimes uh, financial resources in the with the foundation, um, but... You know, I think of, I, I think of it not as synonymous, but but your work is so closely related because what you do impacts their ability to serve more people in Arkansas. Is that correct? It does. Um, a major thrust of our work is to support legal aid. Legal aid cannot lobby Congress or lobby the legislature for their own funding. Mm -hmm. But the commission has a voice in that process, and we go and meet with members of our congressional delegation and talk to them about the importance of legal aid funding for their constituents. Mm -hmm. So we're able to step in and do some things to advocate for legal aid programs in ways that they cannot. But their focus really is on helping individual clients and where appropriate also focusing on litigation that will result in systemic change. Mm -hmm. They cannot take on class action lawsuits, but they may pick an issue that, you know, if they succeed on the merits will impact other people who are similarly situated. But our, our commission's work is broader than that. We see access to justice as something much more broad than just access to lawyers. You know, I think about 
legal help as, as a continuum. And our commission is, is really trying to conceptualize things that way. And I, I often compare it to the way that the healthcare profession deals with this. I, I might just need some basic information about what's going on. You know, I'll get on, I'll consult Dr. Google, mm-hmm. and um, which, you know, I'm, I'm not going to recommend that you do that for the end-all be-all of, right. of what, but you can get enough information to make an informed decision about whether I, you know, I can go to Walgreens and I can get an over-the-counter prescription and I can drink lots of fluids and I can take care of this, um, or I can find enough information that lets me know that this is something serious where mm-hmm. I might need to go and consult with my, my doctor mm-hmm. or even a specialist. Um, so the, the continuum is everything from just general information that, you know, people need to understand their rights and have enough information to even recognize that they have a legal problem. You move on to more personalized, more tailored information, some of the resources that the legal aid programs make available to folks online include automated forms where Mm -hmm. people can go through and complete an interview and then at the end of that interview it generates the documents Mm -hmm. that they need to take with them to the to the court uh, to be able to file and get that taken care of but that's that's going to help people who have simple issues who have the wherewithal to do it themselves right you're going to have people with more serious legal problems or people who have simple legal issues who just don't have the wherewithal to do that and those are going to be folks that are going to need more assistance from an attorney Um, Mm -hmm. so it's it's really a continuum going all the way from general information to just complete beginning to end full representation from from an attorney. And Mm -hmm. and we recognize, too, that our system is such that there are a lot of people who are having to represent themselves because they cannot afford attorneys or because they don't see the value of the service that an attorney provides because we are largely lacking in transparency about how we price our services, what you're going to get for your money, and don't always do a great job of, of keeping our clients in the loop about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of folks, and, and you know, for me personally, I mean, I, I went and figured out how to network our copier to our computer network because I didn't want to pay two thousand dollars to the right. you know to the copy guy to come and do it right. and I could get on YouTube and figure it out myself and that's just the mindset of consumers today right and so the the reality is that there are a lot of people and there will always be a lot of people who are going to be representing themselves in court and in planning for the delivery of legal help to all our Kansans that has to be a big piece of it and that's not something that legal aid uh, primarily focuses on. They're, they're representing individual clients. So our mission is a bit broader in terms of thinking about the spectrum of access to justice. Yes, and on the Dr. Google or Lawyer Google, I mean, you know that I have a, an unbundled practice that is still not making any money, but I have big plans. Uh, if I'd stop doing podcasts and, and everything else, <laughs> uh, I might actually make some money someday. But, you know, there. so there are a couple of things. Jason and I, have talked before about it feels like the legal field is one of the few fields that is expected to provide pro bono work and to help people. Uh, It's not required in Arkansas. It is encouraged for sure. But it's expensive to be a lawyer. No one knows how to advertise anymore. I mean, it's just a real challenge. And Jason's trying to build a new, virtually a new practice in in estate planning. And it is just, we just don't know what to do. Um, And so I, I, I can understand the resistance from lawyers to 
I'm, I'm just going to speak very broadly, to providing free or low-cost access to people because they believe it's taking business away from them, uh, particularly in the unbundled realm. Um, and my memory is is that based on information or studies that you or other um, entities have done, these people are not they're not using those lawyers. Only about 14% of people of all income ranges who have had a civil legal problem in the last 18 months, only 14% ever make their way to an attorney or a, a court or any sort of legal process. The vast majority of people with these, these legal problems are already bypassing lawyers. I mean, a lot of them are going to lose out. They're going to get their, their wages garnished or, or they're just going to let the bills pile up or the taxes pile up until there's a foreclosure. And I mean, be, you know, people have other things going on in their, in their lives, but so few people are, are currently availing themselves of, of that process. Number one, number two, there are on average about 50,000 domestic relations cases that get filed in Arkansas every year. We have give or take about 7,500 actively licensed attorneys, but that includes judges and prosecuting attorneys and um, folks who are prohibited from accepting cases. The actual pool of private practice attorneys in Arkansas who are available to take cases that are for, from paying clients and who can take pro bono cases, that's about 3,000 attorneys. I mean, you do the math. There is no way that every court case that is currently in our system can ever or will ever have a lawyer. It, mm -hmm. it is impossible. That's a good point, too, because I hadn't thought about it until just now. Even of all the attorneys who are, say, practicing in Little Rock, which feels like a million, I don't know how many, but only a fraction of them are actually doing family law, right? So many are doing corporate law or criminal defense or their prosecutors or the people you're talking about. So, so right, it is a much smaller number than, than we tend to think. But so how, how can we, um, as a lawyer who's struggling to make a living, how, how can we help and participate in this process or providing this access to justice, but also still make a living? I think that is, I think that is a struggle. I don't, I don't think I know how to tell lawyers how to think about that. Well, and part of the problem is that we as lawyers don't, don't learn how to think like that. Mm -hmm. Our legal education consists of learning the law and learning the authority and learning where to find it and learning, you know, when it updates, how to think about it. But we, we don't necessarily learn how to be business people. And we're very risk averse. And we are loathe to step out and do things that are very different. The unbundling that you've talked about and that you've done in your practice is something that's relatively new to Arkansas. Um, and just to, to kind of further explain what that is, that is when instead of an, a client coming to the attorney and giving you the whole case, opening up their pocketbook and paying, you know, a $5,000 retainer and then potentially, you know, ongoing bills with no expectation of there being a limit there. Uh, with limited scope representation, that provides that opportunity for attorneys to provide some defined piece of 
assistance for someone with a legal problem, and it needs to be a pretty simple legal problem. It, it, it can't be, if it's too complex, I think that can create some ethical issues for the attorney. But there are tons of people out there who just need child support modifications, or I mean, things that are just really fairly run of the mill and that have the ability to pay for that. And I see limited scope representation or unbundling as, I, if you will, a private market solution. Um, it's not going to be appropriate for every case. And as you know from, from having done it yourself, there's some kinks to work out. Mm-hmm. I mean, figuring out how best to price your services and how best to limit you know, your involvement in a case, um, particularly if you're in front of a judge who doesn't buy into this and um, may not support just your drafting documents for someone. But I, I see there, there's some opportunities, I think, for the private market to adapt. But you can see how LegalZoom has taken advantage of this. Uh, they call it the latent legal market, where people can afford $300, $400, $500 to get help with some discrete piece of a case. And the lawyer who does that, um, provided that they've limited what it is they're going to do in exchange for that fee, can make money doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, when I do talk to lawyers about unbundled, you know, I say that they are just leaving money on the table because if someone can't afford to pay your big retainer, and I couldn't right now, but they can prepare documents. So they can come up with 500 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. And you prepare the paperwork, but it's, you know, sign your little contract that says it's limited. You're not representing them. And then they go on their way. I mean, that's a pretty easy 500 bucks because, or however much you want to charge, because we've already got those templates in place, right? I mean, it's kind of fill in the blank, or we should. If we don't, mm-hmm. then then we're not being efficient enough. But yeah, um, it's it's here. I think it's going to be going to become more prevalent. And I, I wish that more attorneys would embrace it as a piece of their practice, you know, not the whole practice, but, you know, give people help. And the people I've helped, it's interesting. I think that that we tend to think of the folks who use unbundled services as poor people, but in my experience, they're just regular middle-class folks. And our politicians and the media tell us the economy is doing well, but it's really not for a most people, I believe, because they really cannot afford to hire attorneys. And so, like you said, they're not taking care of their problems. And um, yeah, anyway, it's a huge issue. And it's also frustrating to me when, you know, it feels like every court does things their own way. And it's a struggle trying to tell people how to do something on their own when either the clerks are practicing law and they're not doing it right, or a judge doesn't accept the unbundled services or, you know, this idea of limited scope. Um, they're just different hurdles out there. Um, that's frustrating. It's also frustrating to me that we make it so hard. And I tell people, I say, you know, I say the legal field isn't built for you, Joe Public, but it's not built for lawyers either. I mean, it's hard for us, too, because we know what we don't we know there are so many things we don't know. We know about procedure, and then we have to look things up and figure things out, and one mistake can screw up a whole case. And so it's just a really challenging issue. And I'm going to take this away from Unbundled, but I mean, just back to the um, access to justice generally, what are the kind of few things, the big pieces that you all are working on as a commission? 
So some of the big things that I think we're focusing on right now, and we're about to undertake a strategic planning process where that may change, but but really this idea of making Arkansas-specific, accurate legal information available, readily available online for folks, and thinking too about formats that are going to be accessible to people. Most people in Arkansas, just on average, are going to read at a fourth to sixth grade reading level. And if we as lawyers are developing these resources, we're going to speak in lawyerese and it's not going to be understandable to the public. We have to make it so that it's understandable to you know someone who has a fourth grade education. Uh, I think too that people are accustomed to watching YouTube mm-hmm. <laughs> like I did to figure out the networking issue mm-hmm. and having short videos just about procedural steps I think can be helpful. We so we're working on that. I think that we're looking too at equipping judges with the resources that they need to know how to handle self-represented litigants in their courts and how their staff can interact with self-represented litigants in a way that can be helpful and provide information to folks about the process, the next steps, and what they generally need to do to be able to make their case um, without crossing that line into providing legal advice or for the judges uh, creating any appearance of of partiality toward one side or another. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of good resources that are out there that I think we can replicate here in Arkansas. And we've recently surveyed judges and they have indicated that having those resources and that kind of training at their disposal would help them feel more comfortable and help them in better, you know, being better able to serve the folks that are coming through their courtroom and to do it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about that, that, you know, judges are, are loath to help self-represented people because I think that they want to make it uh, a level playing field. They can't help the lawyers practice law, so they should then be allowed to also help self-represented people practice law, right? That is, I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I, I, I have take, something else to say. Sure, because I take issue with that. Okay, <laughs> well tell me about um, that. I mean, I, I sat in court one day um, for a guardianship hearing where the parties were represented by counsel. And the attorney went through and was asking questions of the person who was seeking guardianship and went through all the different elements and then said, um, Your Honor, I'm, I'm done. And as the attorney walked back to his seat, the judge said, Counsel, would you like to ask your client if she's an unpardoned felon? which is one of the elements that you have to prove. And he said, oh yes, oh yes. So, so judges do that. I mean, they, they instinctually, I think, they recognize that it's just gonna be more efficient if there's just that one more question or just that additional element, whether it's an attorney or not. They do this for attorneys mm-hmm. and I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it would just be such a waste of time for that person to have gone on and for the judge to have denied the order and then to come back and do the hearing all over again. And it's the same way with self-represented litigants. And one of the initiatives that our commission undertook and that we succeeded in getting through was a change to the code of judicial conduct when it comes to accommodations that judges may permissibly make in order to ensure that all litigants can be heard, whether they're represented or not. And the comment to that rule specifically mentions what some of those accommodations include. And it's pretty broad. Judges can frame the issues in a way that provides information to everyone in the courtroom about the process, 
the taking of evidence, what the burden of proof is. They need to be explaining it in plain language, but judges can ethically make those accommodations for self-represented litigants and for, you know, quite frankly, attorneys who, who may just forget that, that one last mm-hmm. question that they need to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, I recognize that judges are also concerned about making the private bar mad when mm-hmm. it's the private bar who elects them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's understandable. And I've heard stories of attorneys sitting in court where... Uh, their client sees a self-represented litigant go up and make their case and do it. And the client turns to the lawyer and said, well, why am I paying you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, I, th- th- those are real, those are real issues. Right. But just, I think there are so many cases that go through our courts and so many people who are representing themselves that we have to be able to make accommodations that are going to allow those cases to move through efficiently and to allow people to get their cases heard on on their merits. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Judge Pierce told me when I first started Law to Go that, uh, um, that um, at least 80% of the people who come in his court are self-represented. That is just a huge number. Pulaski County, I'm assuming, has the highest number of cases in the state. Pulaski County does have the highest number of cases in the state. Right. And some of the research that our commission has done bears out what what Judge, what Judge Pierce has said. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least 30% of domestic relations cases, probate cases, you know, property disputes, those kinds of things are initiated by somebody who does not have an attorney. Mm-hmm. And as many as 90% of those cases have the, you know, the person on the other side who is not represented. Right. So it is, it is a huge number. Yeah. I mean, if you take that 50,000 number of domestic relations cases, I mean, you, you do the math on that's tens of thousands of people who are going through court every day who do not have a lawyer. And they are going through a court system that was designed with the assumption that everyone would have a lawyer and that it always had to be an adversarial process to resolve it. And honestly, it was a process that was designed by white men. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so that perspective and that frame Mm -hmm. is part of, you know, how how it's ended up the way that it is. Right, right. And it's a system created by lawyers. Right. For the benefit of lawyers. lawyers. Right. Yeah. And I, um, you know, back to the question about a judge helping a pro se litigant versus someone who's represented. You know, I just think it's fundamentally unfair that that you your best shot is if you can afford it. You know, only the people who can afford to hire a lawyer, provided it's a good lawyer, um, they're going to have a better shot at getting relief than someone who can't. And to me, that's just fundamentally unfair. So, yeah, we have anyone can participate in the court system, but they can't really. I would say that that gets at the heart of really one of the most fundamental American values. We say the Pledge of Allegiance and we say liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. We don't say liberty and justice for all who can afford it. Right. That is just not, that's not even what the framers of our Constitution had in mind. The preamble of the Constitution has, you know, is one of the, the main reasons for even having a Constitution to begin with, established justice. I mean, that's the second reason um, listed in the preamble of the Constitution. I mean, justice is, is fundamental. And if we are wholesale leaving people out of that process, it is not justice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. There are so many just horror stories out there that I hear, and often it's too late to do anything legally because, um, you know, they lost and the time to appeal passed or they can't afford to appeal or whatever it is, and it's just like, you know, I'm sorry. And I don't know what to tell people because when I did work for the court, you know, I, I um, promoted, you know, fair and impartial courts and access to the courts and um, everyone to be able to have their day in court, and it's just not the way it is. So how do we do this? How do we pay for it? You know, how do we how do we provide better access in a way that, well, I guess I've already asked this question. Maybe I haven't heard the answer I want. I don't know. Yeah. But, but how, how do you how do you increase this access or give people more um, access to the courts? But also I need to get paid, too. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. How do you do that? I think we've made things needlessly complicated and needlessly expensive. I think that we really have to think about right-sizing the level of help that people need to what their actual needs are. I mean, not everybody needs Cadillac representation. I mean, that's that's not, you know, that's it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Um, legal information is free, and I think our legal profession has largely protected that information as our intellectual property and it is very difficult for the average person to get online. They can't just get online and just have a reliable source of information. We don't have the legal version of WebMD or something where you can go and answer some basic questions and and get some information that may help you with your issue. I think that's a a huge hurdle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just recognizing too that a lawyer for every person with a problem is also not the, the optimal way to go. Lawyers are expensive and we should reserve that resource for the most complicated of problems that really do require an understanding of constitutional principles. But there's so many cases that don't involve that. And and I think, too, that looking to the courts as the only place to resolve these problems is also short-sighted. There are lots of other options for Uh, resolving disputes in ways that are going to be less expensive and not take up court time. I mean, I think about mediation and uh, alternative dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. I think, too, about, I mean, even for cases that do end up getting litigated, particularly in the family law realm, you see the same people coming back again and again and again because they can't agree because they, you know, they're using the court system as, as a weapon to get back at each other in these mm-hmm. just really contentious divorce situations. And there there are tools out there that, you know, I don't see us using in Arkansas courts, at least, but, but I think can help reduce the cost and the conflict of, of that litigation. So, I mean, I think we have to think about it pretty broadly and not just um, as, you know, every situation has to go or every case has to go through the court system to get to get resolved by attorneys every time. That's that's just that that is an unsustainable approach. Just quickly on mediation. You can do mediation before your court case starts, right? So if you know you're getting divorced and have some things to work out, you can do mediation and then incorporate that into a divorce, right? So you basically have it worked out before Absolutely. You start. So I think a lot of people don't think about doing that. 
I don't. I mean, I'm, no. I'm conditioned to file mm-hmm. a lawsuit first, you know. So mm-hmm. um, so let's I want to wrap up this part about access to justice because I want to talk about your um, your run for office. But are there any um, maybe a couple of high points and then maybe some hurdles that that you're still working on? I think there is a lot of potential promise in in really looking at ways that we can leverage technology. We talked earlier about the automated online self-help resources. There are also uh, a number of courts around the country that uh, have what they call litigant portals where people can, there's kind of no wrong way in, but it's gonna direct people who are searching for information or trying to get answers to a problem to whatever resource is going to be the most likely to help them successfully address their issue. And I think things like that hold a lot of promise. They're also, you know, quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that is something that I think there, there's some potential for and I, I would like to see us explore here in Arkansas. I think that looking at some of these other alternatives as well, I think mediation and, and even incorporating that into unbundling is helpful, um, you know, because someone can get there, even if it's contested. Right now, you know, a contested issue is not going to be appropriate for limited scope representation. You want it to be uncontested. Mm-hmm. But if you can get it mediated and then tie it all up in a bow and then get someone to draft the order and get everything. I mean, I think that there there's some opportunities for thinking about different steps, uh, pulling different steps of the process together in a more holistic fashion. I think, too, that there's a lot of work being done in helping, because we're lawyers, and we, we don't know how to, sp- how to how to speak in, in plain language about the work that we do and the impact that, that it has. And, you know, we hear all this, this great work happening around trying to address poverty or how to end hunger or how to address homelessness or how to make sure that veterans who are coming back after serving a tour of duty are able to to, to get back to work and have the supports that they need to be able to succeed. I mean, there are all these great causes. And, and I think, too, that there are a lot of laudable efforts to pass laws that uh, protect domestic violence victims, that, that protect elderly people who are preyed upon by, you know, scammers. But the ability to enforce the right is really what makes that difference. And that is really where the space where we're working, where we want to be able to equip people with the tools that they need to get out of poverty or to avoid homelessness. And so I I see legal aid and access to justice as a component, really, of a lot of laudable, philanthropic causes that that are out there. Mm -hmm. And some of the work that we're doing is around how we can talk about that in a way that's not, you know, well, you know, support our, you know, if you, you know, make a donation, then you're, you're going to, you're going to get a lawyer for everybody. Right. I mean, lawyers are a very unsexy cause, just generally <laughs> yeah, speaking, yes. um, to, to support. And it's really about the work and the impact that the work has on people's lives. And so we're, we're doing some work around how, how best to, f- to frame that so that we mm-hmm. can really make the case to the public about why it's important really for you know, to to achieve what it is that the even the framers of the Constitution wanted to see to, to make that justice possible for everyone and not just for the folks who, who can afford it. Is it true? My sense is that more bar associations are coming on board with providing um, unbundled or um, 
more access to justice issues. They're they're more supportive. Is that or do you find that to be true? I do. I think that as as they are seeing what's happening in the legal marketplace, and as as we're getting around and talking to folks around the state about the latent legal market and about the opportunities that are there and, you know, equipping people with some tools to to make some of that happen. I think folks are a lot more receptive to it. You know, they they're not seeing it as much as as a threat mm-hmm. um, and now seeing it more as an opportunity because, you know, LegalZoom and some of these other outfits that really have figured out this like this, how to get to this latent legal market, yeah. they're succeeding and they're and and we as lawyers have to adapt to the reality of the current legal market. And we're not good at that. And we're not good at that. We're not very adaptive. No. We're, I mean, we're trained to build on precedent. Right. Right. Well, this is the way we've always done it. And and that has been a struggle for me, too, even. But I've just decided I'm I'm going to embrace technology because it's going to eat us alive or we can be a part of it, its direction. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, like AI is coming for lawyers. Yes, it is. And um, I don't fully understand it or I don't know exactly how that will look. But we can either sit back and complain about it and try to get in the way of um, the people who need the help. um, Or we can figure out a way to make it work for everyone and make sure that it's a good quality service. That's my thing, too. Um, With Law to Go, I've always wanted to make sure that I wasn't just make it a couple hundred bucks here and there, I want to make sure they're getting quality legal work, you know, and there's a lawyer actually looking at what they're getting, um, because I think that is a problem, can be a problem with um, services like LegalZoom, is that if you don't know what you need, you don't know what to ask for, you may not get the right thing that will solve your problem, right, or help solve your problem. So um, LegalZoom, I read that it's a $4 billion a year business. Right. Why, that, that why is, are we not looking at that? Right. I mean, th- this is why lawyers have to adapt. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, because that, that is the competition. And I think that there are things that we can also look at right now in, in Arkansas. And this is really common across the country. Ownership of law firms is limited to lawyers. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, getting any sort of outside capital investment is is not permitted. It is, is permitted in other countries. And when mm-hmm. you think about being able to leverage technology, I think loosening restrictions on law firm ownership is something, too, that, that ought to be looked at. Right. Um, I will probably offend a lot of attorneys by saying this, but I think that another another thing that we have to look at, just given just the sheer number of legal problems and cases out there and just the limited number of attorneys, I think that we have to look at utilizing non-lawyer legal providers, mm-hmm. uh, paralegals. I think other states have looked at limited licensed legal technicians. Yep. And again, this is where I think we can emulate what's going on in the medical field. We see advanced practice nurses and physician's assistants who have prescribing authority mm-hmm. and who can see people for, for the very run-of-the-mill types of issues really that do not necessarily require the level of training that a neurosurgeon is going to need or that a specialist of some sort is, gonna, is, is going to need. And I think that the legal profession is really the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's easy for the public to forget and really, quite frankly, because we've hidden the ball so much when it comes 
comes to even understanding the legal system and the value that an attorney can bring to a case, you know, the attorney is there really to assess the, the complex stuff. I mean, we shouldn't be paper pushers. Mm-hmm. We have technology to do that. Mm-hmm. Very run of the mill, routine things. I think can be handled by non-lawyers who have some specialized training in how to handle those issues. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, law firms can make money off of that too. Yes. I mean, I think that is, that is a potential money maker. Yes. I think that lawyers are, are afraid that that will be competition for their business, but I think it, doing a good job of incorporating that into a practice I think can build your business mm-hmm. and and quite honestly I think when people get that help and and feel like they've gotten the, the value for it they're going to be happy with the services that they've gotten and they're going to refer they're going to refer you to all their friends yeah. and I think too we we are seeing and, and this is somewhat related in as we're thinking about sort of the big issues and challenges to tackle rural access is at a near crisis as it is with the medical profession and with with other other professions i mean we're just seeing population shifts in the state that are leaving people who are in southeast arkansas and in the delta just without access to to, to many resources and we have 55 percent of the state's lawyer population concentrated in three counties right so all 72 other counties have you know have a real problem right so what is it pulaski washington and craighead Benton. Benton County. Oh, Northwest. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, it's, well, I don't want to live in a rural area and it, they're losing their populations as well. Yeah. Right. So you just have a smaller, I guess, potential income base, but I agree with you on the using paralegals. I, I, to me, that just is an added value. And I'll tell you, I've had several people who used my services um, and I didn't represent them, but they have asked me to represent them in more complicated cases because they know they trust me and they, they know the quality of the work. And so, you know, I, I really uh, hope that more lawyers start to think differently about that. I know Washington State allows the paraprofessionals to do forms, basically. Um, do you know of other states? I can look it up if you don't, but... Um, I know that New York uses uh, navigators to help uh, folks who have housing issues. Uh, that's the other state that just immediately comes to mind mm-hmm. in terms of the use of, of non-lawyer, n- you know, navigator type right. people. Yeah. Um, and, and really, quite honestly, a lot of what happens, or I think a lot of the the barriers are just with how complicated our processes are. Mm-hmm. And I think another piece that we have to look at just in terms of making access to justice a reality for folks, we got to make things easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it is a system that's designed by lawyers to be complicated because at one time that was our business model. People would pay us because it was too complicated for everyone else to figure out. Right. That is not the reality now. Right. And I think we have to look at, at making court procedures more simple and look at at trying to gain some uniformity in how courts do things so that whether you walk into court in Craighead County or whether you walk into court in Stone County that you can expect a similar sort of sequence of of events Mm -hmm. and some predictability there. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Do you guys have an annual event? Yeah, we do. um, In October of every year, 
we celebrate Pro Bono Week. It's part of a national effort that the American Bar Association has undertaken really to highlight the work that pro bono attorneys do. And, and you know, we in Arkansas, we, we want to lift up the work that pro bono attorneys here do. It's extremely important. It's part of the support network that the legal aid programs have. You know, again, the number of the sheer number of attorneys that we have are such that pro bono is not going to be the solution, but certainly where people do need that individual representation and it's beyond the capability of the legal aid programs to do it, pro bono is, is an essential thing. So every October we celebrate pro bono week, typically with a couple of events. And as of last year, started a, an annual fundraiser that we will do once again this year in October. I think a lot about the oath that we took when we became lawyers. Mm -hmm. And there's this language in that oath that says that I will not reject from any consideration personal to myself the cause of the impoverished, the defenseless, or the oppressed. And there are a lot of attorneys in Arkansas who take that oath very seriously, that piece of the oath very seriously, and do a lot of good work and deserve to be recognized for it. And so we want to be part of making sure that attorneys who are are doing that good work Mm -hmm. uh, get the recognition that they deserve. Yeah. And we have a horrible reputation. Um, and uh, there, I just know there are so many good attorneys out there, more good than bad for sure. And I think that most attorneys really care about their clients and about doing, you know, good work. Um, and so I agree with you that we should definitely recognize those people. So, well, thank you for all of the work you do with access to justice for sure. Um, and I'm, between one of you to stay and one of you to be a judge. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's shift gears. So you are running for circuit judge in Pulaski County. And whose seat are you, would you be replacing? Um, I'm running for 15th Division, which is the seat currently held by retiring judge Dick Moore. Dick Moore. Okay. Yeah. I really like him. Yeah. So we have a bunch of people running for a judge. And tell me why, why circuit judge and why now? I think that having worked with Access to Justice for the last 10 years and really seeing where the rubber meets the road, it is on the trial court bench. And a lot of the change that I have come to see is needed in the judicial system, quite honestly, can only happen from within. There is a significant turnover, not just here in Pulaski County, but around the state. We're going to have a lot of new judges coming in beginning in 2021. And I see this as an opportunity to have an influence, not just in 15th Division, Pulaski, Perry Counties, but also to have an influence statewide in rethinking how the courts need to work to better serve the, the, the citizens who come through our courts. I think that there is a lot of distrust and misunderstanding and just lack of basic information about how our court system works. And I think that we, as a, I, I think that that is doing a disservice to, to the state of Arkansas. And, and I think it's understandable, again, you know, judges are lawyers and we are very much about status quo and doing things the same way that we've always done them. But I think it's time to rethink about the way that the court system 
deals with litigants in courts. And I want to be a part of making that change happen on the front lines. I also, you know, I train judges. I go around the state and I speak. I talk about unbundling. I talk about accommodations that can be made in cases involving self-represented litigants. But I don't sit on that bench every day and see what those judges see. And I feel like I need to better understand that firsthand and to, to really get a handle on what those challenges are. And then I think that would give me the understanding that I need to be able to think more broadly about what can be implemented statewide even um, to make to make cases go through the, the system more efficiently and, and you know, quite honestly to make sure that justice is served. And how can you do that as a judge in um, one judicial district? How can you, what, in what ways can you help make changes throughout the state as a judge? I mean, for one thing, I'm willing to try some different things. I think the way that, that judges are typically dealing with their dockets, um, you know, there are a few judges that are taking advantage of some data that the Office of Justice Statistics collects on cases where they can run reports and see, you know, how, how long a case has been languishing and then prompt some action on that. I think that there's more that, that we need to be doing. You know, I, I would like to be able to implement a system where we're identifying those cases that are, you know, getting close to the deadline for service and prompt the litigants in those cases that this is step two. It's not readily apparent what step one, step two, step three is. And that is legal information. That is not legal advice. Right. And we see so many people fall through the cracks because they think they just filed a case and then the, the judge is going to let them know when they need to show up. And that's not the way that it works. And we do not tell people that. Um, we also don't tell people that they're supposed to show up in court with their own orders drafted. I think that's, we have at our disposal the technology that could allow for the generation of those orders using data that's in the case management system. And I mean, this is probably also, <laughs> you know, a controversial statement, but I, I think that unless there are two attorneys that are involved that generally speaking ordinary types of orders need to be produced by by the judge's offices you know i think through too about scheduling cases and you know just I, I got a text message from my dentist's office when it was my birthday, and I, I see some opportunities there for being able to prompt people when there is a next step that needs to be taken. And we're, we're collecting case data to, that, that gives us the ability to do that. I think that just thinking broadly about how that looks and trying to implement some of those changes and then talking to other judges and encouraging them to do that. And of course, we have a, a judicial council where judges do share best practices and, and, you know, identify folks from other states that are doing creative things to, you know, to, to, to deal with all of this. And in my work with Access to Justice, I've had access to a lot of that. So I have some ideas for, for some of those things. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd want to try it out and then, you know, talk to other judges and encourage them to, to consider it. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, in my experience on the Supreme Court, uh, they were they were loath to do anything that, that lawyers might not want to do or judges might not want to do because we all like to do it our way and we think our way is right. Do you think at some point, and I can't really, I'm not sure of an example, but let's say for the, on the service issue, do you think at some point where the Supreme Court is just going to have to mandate certain things to provide uh, better services to the people who are using the courts? 
There are some things I think that are going to need to come from the Supreme Court. You know, one example that I think about is a policy of some sort that quite clearly defines what kinds of information and assistance that court staff may permissibly provide to the self-help public without crossing that line over into legal advice. There is there is no uniform, well, let me back up. We as a legal profession can't agree on what the definition of the practice of law is. I think that that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. And so trying to define what is not the practice of law is equally challenging. Mm-hmm. And And I think that having some sort of policy that lays that out. Court staff are on the front lines of all of this. They are interacting with people every single day who are looking for information about what they need to do next. And court staff, as the experts in how those court processes work, are uniquely situated to provide that. Now, I recognize that there are limitations on their time and that that a lot of times they're stretched in many diff- different directions and, and they may not you know, be able to go through and, and provide detailed instructions to mm-hmm. everyone. But I think that's where having online resources available in places where court staff can send people mm-hmm. um, is important to have. Mm-hmm. And I think that having a policy like that that implements some sort of uniformity across the board is, is really quite essential. Mm-hmm. And I think, because I mean, I, I've walked in before to a court where the first sign that I see when I walk in is we can't give legal advice. And so I ask where the bathroom is and they point to the sign. I mean, it is, it is that, (laughs) I mean, that may be a little bit of an overstatement, but they will give absolutely no information whatsoever that is helpful. Yes. Uh, And I worked as a law clerk for a judge and the pro se people are pain in the ass. I mean, they really are because they want you to tell them how to do everything. And so I understand it's much easier to say, Mm-mm, can't tell you, can't tell you anything. But I think what you're talking about, certainly kind of procedural guidelines or um, explanations. I like your online resources thoughts. Um, and I've been thinking about doing more of that on my own website, just to tell people, where do you sit when you go in court, you mm-hmm. know, or who can you, you know, the bailiff will tell you or, you know, whatever. But I think it's going to also take a lot of education, um, yes. uh, you know, among our clerks and the, t- the trial court assistants and everyone who is in there. And believe me, I have compassion for their jobs, for them in their jobs. It is hard. It is so hard. And um, any customer service job is hard, but I think the courts have to be particularly difficult um, because, it's it's a, a place that is so personal to everyone who's involved in it, right? And it's usually very emotional, and so I get it. I feel for them, but at the same time, we've got to have some some basic standards. And and if we're going to say we can't practice law, then don't practice law, right? Or it, provide the minimum you can that explains things. It's not practicing law, like you said. It's providing information. So. And we need to have that information. We need to have those resources where people can actually point them to that. So when they have a self-represented litigant come in and say, hey, I filed this and I, when can I get a hearing? And then the trial court assistant will look and service hasn't been affected. Mm -hmm. But then they're like, well, we just, we can't do it now. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. no reason why we can't have, and there already is, there is a fact sheet available online on service and having, you know, some of those fact sheets for common questions where they 
they can hand it to him and say, this is normally the next step in the mm-hmm. process. This is what has to happen before this can, can be set for a hearing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's information. And yeah. having that resource that they can then hand to them is, you know, I, I, I hope would make their jobs in, in dealing with folks easier. Yeah. And part of what I'm working on a lot ago is um, kind of a tickler system, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so, okay, you filed it. This is next. You know, you have 120 days to get service. You know, do you know where they live or, you know, whatever. I mean, just kind of basically uh, conditional um, checklist. So yes. once they do this, then it's going to tell them what the next thing to do is. Um, but yeah, there are lots of, and that's, it goes back to using technology. So you want to kind of work on the front lines. Um, what do you think makes a good judge? You know, obviously a judge is going to have to be impartial and fair. I think there's this whole body of research around this concept, and I believe that it's called procedural fairness, where if a person has their day in court and the process is explained to them, they feel like they've had the opportunity to tell their story, uh, they feel like the judge has listened to them, and the judge makes a decision, and even if that decision is not in their favor, they are a lot more willing to accept that than if they go in, they're cut off, they're not permitted to tell their side of the story. It still turns out their way, but they, they do not feel like they have had the ability to go through that process and understand it and fully participate in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that a good judge is going to practice procedural fairness in their court. I think that a good judge, particularly in cases where you do have self-represented litigants, is going to have to do a good job of explaining in plain language what what we're here today to talk about and the, what order I'm going to go in, who I'm going to be asking questions of. And here are the three things that I need to be able to get evidence that I need for you to, to talk to me about or tell me about. And I think a good judge is going to make that process transparent and understandable and try to put people at ease. I mean, and you're right. When people show up in court, they're almost always facing, I mean, nobody's happy to be there. They are there because some terrible, awful thing is happening in their lives. Lives and they're under a tremendous amount of stress. And I think that having having that, that compassion and approaching things in a way that allows people to feel as comfortable as they can feel going through that and just knowing that they're, they're being heard. A good judge is also going to be aware. Let me back up. I've always hated this, the depiction of, of Lady Justice as having a blindfold. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, and I think the idea is, in theory, is good, is that, you know, you you have your blindfold on, so you can't tell whether they're rich or whether they're poor or, or what, what their circumstances are. You're going to treat everyone the same. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, that and I, I think that's kind of akin to this concept of colorblindness. I just, I don't think that it, it does justice or that it meets people where they are. And, and we know, I mean, we see the research on things like implicit bias, where when you control for all other factors, uh, particularly in, in criminal cases where the sentences that people of color are getting are disproportionately more severe than the sentences that are given to people who are white. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 the blindfold's already not there. Mm-hmm. But I think a judge is going to be aware of and actively working to address those implicit biases. Uh, I mean, I think until that is addressed that we, again, we're, we're, we're not really doing justice. Mm-hmm. 
I think a good judge is also going to to read and thoughtfully consider and apply the law. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I know, and everyone's had the experience of walking into a court where that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think a good judge is, is going to need to do that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I will not burden the listeners with all my thoughts as a lawyer about judges. Um, I appreciate judges and what they do. And even the, the ones we consider good judges have their days, you know. So judicial races are nonpartisan. Um, I think for the average person, it's really hard to know how to vote for a judge if they'd vote for them at all. So just as someone who may not have a lot of experience in the courts, can you can you recommend a way for them to think about these judicial races? I mean, most people, I, I hope, ask attorneys, you know, who do you like? And I know a lot of people ask me, and I give them my honest assessments. What do, what do you recommend? Sure. And I think that judicial races in particular are sort of the most difficult for the general public to get their heads around because there's not a D or an R after a person's name to signal whether, you know, someone's philosophy is going to align with with the voters. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it should be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics really have no place in the courtroom. I think that judicial candidates are notoriously tight-lipped in talking about, I mean, they may talk about their experience. Well, I've I've tried 120, you know, bench trials and 500, you know, they, they, people can talk about their experience and they can talk about the cases that they've tried and the areas of law. And that's good. I think it's important to have experience. But I think that in terms of doing your homework, of course, with Facebook and with websites. Uh, I don't know if there are going to be any organizations. I know that the Cooperative Extensions Office puts out a good voter guide. Uh, I don't re- recall offhand whether judicial candidates are normally included in that. I think or they not. are. I think they are. I mean, that, that has been, in my experience, an excellent resource because they normally, well, certainly for issues that have two sides, they'll present mm-hmm. both sides and, and let people make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. There are six open seats and there are a lot of lawyers running, and that's a lot of bios to have to go through and read. But I do think talking to attorney friends, I think that if if you are on social media, finding the, you know, whatever Facebook or Instagram or Twitter accounts and and, and reading up Mm -hmm. on the candidates is a good way to get a sense for that. And I think, too, that a lot of the candidates are going to be making their way around to different community events and and really try. I mean, I know I'm going to go out and try to meet as many people as I can. And and I want to gather feedback from people. I want to hear from folks about what their experience with the court system have been and what their frustrations have been. And, um, you know, a, a lot of us are wearing our buttons when we go out mm-hmm. in public. So if you find someone, run, approach them and ask mm-hmm. them and, and talk to them about it. Yeah. Yeah. I have always, even if a friend is running, I, but I think that there's a better candidate because I do think that, that you have to have a good judicial temperament, meaning you're going to treat everyone with respect um, and run a good courtroom in addition to reading and studying the law and trying to make good decisions that way. But I really just want people to get a fair shot. And if I think that someone is biased in one way or another, I'm not going to want to vote for them. You know, um, I know in a recent race, I voted for someone I do not like, but I thought the other person would be a less fair judge, you know, and it's just, 
So it's it's how I, it's how you have to do it because it impacts so many people. Anyway, it's just a, they're such important races, and I feel bad for people who don't know how to vote in them because I get it, and I don't know except for doing the homework like you just said I don't know how they would know and that's hard to do I mean that that's time consuming and yeah. in the grand scheme of things the, the kinds of races that people are thinking more about are the ones of, of national significance mm-hmm. but these are ones that impact your daily life yep and you know again it's because we as lawyers and I think judicial candidates don't do a good job of communicating the the importance of this mm-hmm. and and how the the court system really is sort of the last stop mm-hmm. for protecting people's rights mm-hmm. we don't do a, a, a good job of, of really helping people understand the larger context in which the judicial system sort of fits into civilized society. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people don't feel like they have a way to resolve their problems, they're going to resort to other avenues to solve them and other avenues that may involve violence or may mm-hmm. involve unrest. I mean, we see that, you know, we saw, of course, in Ferguson, Missouri, there was a situation there where, and this is a whole other issue, mm-hmm. but where uh, the courts, in order to fund themselves, were relying very heavily heavily on fines and fees and there was just a complete and very understandable distrust of Mm -hmm. the court system up there and no expectation on the part of folks of color in Ferguson that they were ever going to get a fair shake Mm -hmm. and and that is and we and we saw what happened as, as a result of that our court system has to work and it has to be fair it has to be Funded in a way that does not set up these conflicts of interest where we have this financial incentive to impose fines and fees right. on people. I mean, it is extraordinarily common and extraordinarily problematic, even here in Arkansas. That's not the way that our court system should be funded, but we also have the challenge of just, well, then how do we fund it? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when I was with the court, we had uh, the crisis where they didn't know if they were going to be able to pay their trial court assistance because there wasn't enough money coming into this fund. And one of the problems was that judges, people couldn't afford to pay their fines, so judges were letting them work them off instead of imposing a monetary fine. And just not enough money was coming in because the economy was really struggling. This must have been early in my tenure there. but And so, you know, part of the response was to raise fines and fees. And it's just... You know, so now because of that, we now charge 50 bucks to cho- to file a motion to a petition to seal a criminal case where it used to be free. Well, now we've put a $50 burden on someone with very complicated forms who probably can't get a job. And that's why they're trying to seal their record. Now we're charging them. Right. So I get that we have to pay for the system, but on the backs of poor people, it just is not the right way, in my opinion. Well, and I, you know, to be completely honest, and I, and this is, and it, I recognize what what a challenge this is in a budget environment that we have right now. But the judicial branch is a co-equal branch of mm-hmm. government, and in Arkansas, that branch of the government receives less than one half of one percent of the entire state budget. Mm-hmm. I think that taxpayers need to be funding the court system, and that we do not need to be imposing the costs of operating that system on the backs of poor people. And we do not need to be piling costs and fines and fees and fees upon fees Mm -hmm. 
for, you know, we see it a lot with people who are on probation and there there is a fee for the ankle monitor and a fee, there all these fees that get piled on top of people where we are completely and totally setting up people to fail. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I understand that there are costs that are associated with that, but the ultimate societal costs that we are seeing when we are setting up people to fail and we're sending them back to prison and incarcerating them, the ultimate costs of all of that, I think, are far greater than it would be if we were just to have a system that is funded by taxpayer dollars and that is adequately funded. So do you think that monetary punishment should be a part of the punishment system? I think that it should be. And I think that the circumstances, there are absolutely circumstances where monetary punishment is and should be part of of the calculus. Mm -hmm. I think that you have to you have to be able well i mean the rules require that you do an ability to pay assessment though and there are a lot of a lot of judges that are not going through that ability to pay assessment and then they're locking people up because they can't pay mm-hmm. and you know that person's going to lose their job they might lose their kids if they're the primary caregiver and uh and they're never going to be able to pay it mm-hmm. and what what good is that going to do mm-hmm. and i think that there are circumstances where we have to find alternatives to that or you know other states too that have looked at reducing or like moving away from cash bail systems have found that whenever they've reduced those fines and have given people, you know, payment options that don't, you know, tack on an exuberant amount of interest or whatever that, that they are seeing collections go up because people aren't just throwing their hands up and saying, you know, it might as well be a hundred thousand dollars. People see it as, as a realistic, you, you make the fine fit more closely with what that person's ability to pay is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they definitely have a place in the system, but I think that it has, you have to take into account the ability of, of people realistically to actually pay those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears here. Um, one thing I, I think people also uh, maybe don't think about enough with judges is that uh, back to the politics issue. Um, the late Chief Justice Jim Hanna, he would tell groups that came into the Supreme Court, he would use the example of a federal judge, I think from Florida, but she's a, she was a nun, and but then she was a judge, and she had to make a decision on an abortion case, but the law was access to abortion, even though she didn't believe in it personally, she knew as a judge that she had to make that decision. And his point was, sometimes we have to do things that we don't personally agree with, but if that's what the law is, we have to follow the law. So, you know, Jason will, Jason will tell his clients, you know, if we all leave mad, the judge probably made the right decision, right? And I think it's similar in that sometimes you're going to have to make a tough decision, even though it's not the decision you want to make, but it's the right decision. Is that something you think about? Absolutely. And I I think that that is, I mean, for a judge to uphold their obligation to be fair and impartial and to uphold the law. I mean, a judge takes an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of Arkansas. And I think that it is incumbent on that judge to to follow that law. And I think to be truly fair and unbiased, you have to be able to set aside whatever own personal 
biases or or beliefs and and follow what the law says. I mean, I think that is part of your responsibility as a judge. And I, I might have very strong feelings about one social issue or another, may even have, you know, moral, have a moral sense about something. But I think ultimately that you have to be able to do what the law says that you're supposed to do mm-hmm. in deciding a case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, acknowledge that. I mean, that, that's got to be difficult to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, I wish we would do more of that in life. I mean, uh, sometimes all in thinking about things, I won't agree with something, but I know it's the right thing. I wish I could think of an example. And it's, you know, it's, I think it's um, one of the um, both wonderful and, and wonderful and difficult things about this country um, is the freedoms we're allowed and which is not exactly what we're talking about, but I guess, well, I'm going to just stop talking about it because I can't, I can't articulate what I'm really thinking. But, um, okay, we've gotten, oh, my God, I don't know. It's been so long. Um, no, we're, we're fine. Okay. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to cover? Another piece is I think about what I would like to see and what I would like to be a part of in changing the way the administration of justice works in Arkansas. There's this whole body of research around trauma and in particular childhood trauma and the potentially catastrophic outcomes that that trauma has for health and life expectancy. And I see courts as a place where right now a lot of trauma that people experience is being perpetuated. And again, it's because court cases necessarily are going to involve extraordinarily difficult situations. I mean, in divorce cases in particular, you see how the fighting between the parents is just so completely toxic and just the lifelong problems that that can cause for children. And there's not a a lot that I have seen out there yet in particular about having trauma-informed courts. And and Judge Joyce Warren, I think I've seen her at several events around town where we've talked about adverse childhood experiences and the negative health outcomes that that happen as a result of that. But courts are really a locus of, of potential change around that. And I would love to see our courts become trauma-informed and not just, you know, juvenile cases are an obvious area where there's just a lot of childhood trauma and the opportunity to create more stable situations for children that help them build resilience and help them overcome some of that. We need to have that in mind and be trained and equipped to deal with those situations in a way that doesn't re-traumatize people. I, I just, I think courts have to just be, be more aware of and informed of those processes and figure out ways to do things in a way that still accomplishes the goal mm-hmm. of, of justice, but that is not harming people in the process. Right. You know, when I was 11, 12, my parents got divorced and it, I'm 48 now and it still is, it's probably the worst thing that's ever happened. I mean, it was just a, such a traumatic event for me and I didn't have to testify in court, but just the, just the dynamics of, of that experience were really horrible. And um, so I can only imagine what it's like for kids who do have to testify or who are somehow drawn into it in ways that uh, they could use support 
you know, and I don't know what that looks like. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, in the literature and in the research on adverse childhood experiences, you know, if you go through that list, one of them is the divorce of your parents. That is a traumatic Mm -hmm. event that if you have that happen, you know, that is going to have an impact unless you have other supports or other ways to, to build resilience. You've got some other state stability in your life or it's dealt with in a way that minimizes that conflict. I mean, it is otherwise it is going to stay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, another is the incarceration of a parent. And I mean, mass incarceration could be another topic for an entire other podcast. But the rate at which we are incarcerating people, too, is also leaving a generation of traumatized children who who lack that family support and that family stability. And I think as we think about sentencing and I think as as we consider how our criminal justice system I mean, we obviously there, there are people who commit terrible crimes and who deserve punishment and, and need to be removed from society. But you also look at the rates of incarceration. You look at private prisons. You look at disparities in sentencing. And I think we have to be thinking about all of those things and really look at incarceration as as something that is reserved for the really serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're incarcerating people for for mental health problems, for substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in the process, we're traumatizing them and traumatizing their families, and they are not going to be rehabilitated when they get out. Right. I mean, our, we, we should have as a goal, you know, rehabilitating people who end up incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so I think as we think about... As we think about trauma and a trauma-informed justice system, I think about those things as well and, and what we need to be doing. We, we have to serve justice. I think that there, there have to be consequences when people break laws and when they harm mm-hmm. people or you know do things that, that, are, that are disruptive to society. But I think that we also have to look at where there are underlying mental health or substance abuse issues that need to be addressed and can be done so in a way that maximizes people's opportunities for mm-hmm. recovery. Mm-hmm. Poverty. Education. It's all, it's all, it's all intertwined. Yes, that's right. That's right. And the position you're running for at the moment is, I think, almost entirely domestic relations, right? That's correct. I think it's domestic relations and probate. And probate. Okay. And uh, I know that that can change because each district, they kind of do their case plans uh, to determine which judges are going to hear which cases. But that, at least for the moment, that's what you would be doing primarily. But obviously, you have no uh, opposition to having to do criminal or civil cases if that were to become part of your caseload? That's correct. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I think any candidate who's, who's running in, in this election cycle for one of these judicial spots has to have the expectation that, that the case assignment um, could, could change, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'd certainly be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a website, a campaign website yet? I do have a campaign website. It is amyjohnsonforjudge.org. All right. And the election is in March of 2020, right? It is. Um, Which is the primary election. It is the primary election. And and then the runoff will be in November. I think most of the races that... Uh, most of the the races right now, most of the six, have at least three candidates. So it's going to be a long haul for most wow. of us. There are a couple that have two. Those those lucky <laughs> those lucky people. But uh, so it will be it will be for quite some time. But I believe. But if you win fifty one percent, do you win or what? Are, what are the numbers for runoff or no runoff? 
Uh, 51% would be no runoff. I think that, and I expect to have two opponents for my race, and I think it would be extremely difficult to get 51%, you know, in a three-way race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to to be as successful sure. as I can, but I'm I'm preparing for for a runoff yeah. if I if I get past round one. Yeah. Well, and I have not done the, the I haven't counted recently, but I know that. I want to say the number of women judges in the state was about 20%, maybe 21 or 23% when I counted, but that's been several years. Do you have any idea what that number is? I don't have any updated information. I'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, there are more than half of the people in law school are women, and I know that number drops off a lot once you get into practice, just because women have so many challenges in, uh, I mean, practicing law is hard. It's a challenging profession. Um, and when you have children or, well, when you have children, <laughs> that's usually the, the yes. barrier. You either have to drop off, drop out, or, you know, cut back on your caseload. And that is just not a way to advance in the legal field. So it's a real challenge. But I know that the number of female judges is is quite low. Not surprising, but it is quite low. So um, I'd certainly like to see more women on the bench. But that doesn't mean that just because you're a woman, you're going to be a better judge. And I can point to some examples of that, and I won't. But uh, but we we need good judges. We need good uh, female candidates. So I'm glad you're running. And just full disclosure, I don't care who your opponent's for. I am totally voting for you. I really, <laughs> I yeah, I just admire you so much. And you're just such a good role model for your girls. And you're fun. And you're smart. And I know that you're you really care about people and you care about Arkansas. And that just, it means a lot to me. And uh, I just appreciate you a lot. And thank you. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast and highlighting the work of just some amazing women here in Arkansas who are doing incredible things. And it is a a privilege to be counted among, you know, some of these folks that I've gotten to listen to visit with you. Yeah. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. So, so this is perfect. I appreciate it. And thank you and good luck with the race. Okay. Thank you so much.